This is a Federal News Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. The Federal Employees Dental and Vision Insurance Program is now available to thousands more federal employees. The Office of Personnel Management has made that eligibility final. The change affects certain temporary, part-time, and seasonal employees, as well as Postal Service employees. For details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman and I spoke with the editor of the Consumer's Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees, Kevin Moss. It's not every day that a new federal benefit is awarded, but last month OPM passed a final rule that grants additional federal employees and some postal employees access to the FedVIP dental and vision program. So these are supplemental dental and vision plans. It's a somewhat significant impact. There's about 72,000 federal employees that are gaining access to this, that have never had access to it before. And then almost 120,000 postal employees where their eligibility for FedVIP is sped up. They All non-career and pre-career postal employees eventually do get access to FedVIP, but they generally have to wait a year for that. Under this new OPM rule, instead of having to wait a year, they have to wait three months, 90 days, if they work 130 hours a month. And so this uh, gives them access to the FedVIP dental and vision programs in a sped up fashion. What does that do to the risk profile, the uh, cost basis pool? I mean, what could this, I guess, eventually, how could it affect levels of coverage, if it could, or premiums, if it could? Yeah, OPM right now isn't sure exactly how this will impact, but in their rule, in the in their explanation of the rule, they think this is a minimal impact to the overall uh, you know, Fed VIP program, both in terms of premium and the overall risk pool. Uh, of course, it depends on how many of these employees actually sign up for this coverage, but OPM is predicting a, a minimal impact overall for all of federal employees writ large. We just hope that the 130 eligible, 130,000 eligible people have brushed their teeth throughout <laughs> their lives. <laughs> we, we hope there's been some preventative dental care. And Kevin, thank you so much for being here. As you kind of mentioned, there's tens of thousands of people who are now eligible, newly eligible for for the vision and dental benefits. Of course, that doesn't mean everyone will do it or everyone will sign up for it, but for those who will or who are planning to, what does that look like? Is there a special window that they can sign up for now? There is. So if you are part of this group, and this group is temporary, seasonal, and intermittent federal employees, and both the non-career or sometimes called pre-career postal employees, you now, right now, have a 60-day window to sign up for a Fed VIP plan. You should have been alerted by your HR benefits office of this new benefit. And if you miss this initial window, you will have another window in open season 2024, which uh, starts on November 13th and lasts a month. So it's really too early to tell what the take-up is going to be on this, fair to say. Fair to say. Yeah. And there's an, uh, one other point about this is that so for the postal employees, they have access to a health plan. All non-career, pre-career postal employees have access to the USPS health plan. In that health plan, you receive preventative dental care at 100% if you stay in network. So all of your cleanings and, and x-rays are being covered 100%. So if you're happy 
with that coverage, you're happy with that set of providers, and you're generally a low-cost dental user, you may not get value in signing up to a Fed VIP plan where you have to pay 100% of that premium. The government's not paying a share of that premium for Fed VIP enrollment. If you like your scaler, you can keep your scaler. (laughs) (laughs) You get to keep that. (laughs) All right. Kevin, just for context here, how big is the Fed VIP program right now? And, you know, how much could this have any impact on premiums uh, more more broadly for the program? And then can you also tell us how many uh, carriers or plans are available through this program? Yeah, I don't have the specific numbers on, on the plans, but I, there's something like maybe eight, depending upon where you live in the country, there's some HMO choices. In the D.C. area here, for example, you have Dominion. Uh, which isn't found in other parts of the country. But there's something about 18 Fed VIP plans. I think the thing to, to when you're considering those to know is that all orthodontic coverage, you no longer have to wait for orthodontic care. This was a rule that um, was passed last year by OPM that um, these Fed VIP plans had to start offering orthodontic care right away, day one. But do keep in mind that they all generally have a lifetime benefit maximum on orthodontic care per person. And you can't game the system and and sign up for a plan in one year, then drop out and then come back to get the rest of your orthodontic care. The plans are keeping track. So, and generally, that lifetime benefit maximum may be less than the full cost of orthodontic coverage. So it's generally anywhere from three to $5,000 lifetime benefit. And so many families, I think, will still f- have out-of-pocket out of dental costs and should think about you know, complementing their Fed VIP plan with a flexible spending account, which you can get uh, you know, about a 30% tax break on out-of-pocket dental expenses and other healthcare expenses. So we think that's a, a good matchup of benefits. And I just want to pull one more string on that issue of the risk pool because postal workers, you know, they have regular lives for the most part. It's pretty predictable. But there are people that you mentioned, temporary or pre-federal employees. Often those are firefighters, you know, out there in the woodlands, and we know what's been going on out there. So could, say, in the area of vision or eye coverage, they might be more susceptible. Again, it seems like that could be a higher risk for everyone in the pool and therefore affect premiums down the line. It's a possibility, but OPM in in their guidance does not think that it's going to move the needle that much. But we do agree. Firefighters and other emergency personnel, they are one of the, there are two of the groups that are getting this benefit for the first time. They have not been previously eligible for Fed VIP. And so we don't know yet what the uptake will be. Um, But overall, OPM thinks that this isn't going to have a big impact to the rest of federal employees. So we can hope or at least presume maybe that OPM did research among the industry that covers firefighters and whatever. Yeah. And when you actually read the final rule, there's comments um, that the public makes on these rules. This whole process has started in October of 2021. It almost took two years from infancy to it finally passing. And, you know, a lot of the comments are about how a great thing this is that these new employees are going to get this access. And then there's also complaints. Uh, Federal employees are saying, you know, why aren't better dental and vision benefits in the FEHB plans. And OPM basically says, well, get that coverage from the standalone options. We're not going to force the FEHB plans to, to do more on dental and vision. 
Our guest is Kevin Moss, editor of Consumer's Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees. Drew Friedman is with me on this interview. Drew? Great. Thanks, Tom. And, you know, Kevin, I think, you know, an interesting point here is that I believe it was just a few years ago that eligibility opened up to these this same group of employees for FEHB, and now it's, in addition, adding Fed VIP to that list as well. So is there any indication in the way that those employees have affected the broader pool in FEHB that could kind of, um, you know, maybe imply or, or indicate how this is going to affect Fed VIP? Well, when we look at the, the biggest group here that is is impacted is postal and the non-career and the pre-career postal employees. And their benefits set up, they're getting a um, some support for premium for their health care premiums from the postal service. There's only a, a couple of different job types where FEHB plans they're receiving any contribution to the premium. Without a government contribution to the premium, many of these postal non-career and pre-career are not on FEHB plans. They are on the USPS health plan that's managed by uh, the USPS. So um, many of those employees do not have FEHB coverage right now, and it's generally not a great deal for them because the USPS healthcare plan is a pretty robust plan that does have dental and vision benefits, and and those employees are receiving some premium contribution from the Postal Service. So, you know, thinking about it in financial terms, they're much better off being in the U.S. PS health plan than actually considering FEHB coverage. I know that a lot of this uh, final rule from OPM, it was talking about eligibility for Fed VIP, but there were also a couple different rule changes uh, or you know provisions that were part of this rule as well. So, for example, one was that uh, retiring active duty military members they have a bigger enrollment window now for Fed VIP. Uh, can you talk about you know maybe why that? Um, why you think that decision was made or how that's going to impact those uh, those military members? Yeah, I think the big thing with that is whether those retired active duty service members have access to VA benefits. And I think it takes a while for those benefits to be processed of whether active duty service members are getting dental and vision benefits from the VA. Uh, this rule clarified that if you are eligible for VA benefits and you signed up for Fed VIP, that you could cancel your Fed VIP coverage outside of open season. And let's, Kevin, talk about the types of qualifying life events that could cause people to cancel or lower their Fed VIP enrollment. That's also part of this final rule. What are some examples of what they're looking at here? It is the VA dental and vision benefit. Outside of that, you generally can't cancel coverage outside of open season. Um, but it is one of the, th- the provisions of this entire program, much like FEHB. You're only stuck with your choice for a year. If your situation changes and you need to um, make a different choice, you always have you know, a few months to wait until you can make a different change for next year. And if you need something, you can always pay if you have to. You can pay, but we hope that really, uh, flex- if you're not retired and you're still an active employee, that you're using a flexible spending account. That's really a no-brainer. Everyone, even with you know Fed VIP dental coverage or your FEHB plan, none of them are going to cover all of your healthcare expenses. You're always going to have some out-of-pocket that you're going to face. Why not set up the FSA flexible spending account? Save thirty percent and save a little money along the way.
And, you know, I think another important point to bring up here is that something that OPM mentioned in the final rule was that there might be a bit of a pent up demand for people who are newly enrolling in Fed VIP. Do you think that there is a chance that there could be, you know, maybe some delays or issues with this uh, open enrollment window, this 60 day window that we have right now for, uh, uh, you know, thousands of new people who are going to be signing up for this? You know, I think that the only delay possibly is is the communication, uh, you know, from a benefits office to employees that you now have this coverage. And it's possible that people find out about this too late. And that being said, you still have the upcoming open season here in a few months to sign up for something if you miss it right now. So you may not you may miss this window, not have coverage for the rest of 2023, but can hop in um, in the fall and make sure you have coverage in 2024. Anything else people need to know right now, or should they just enjoy the rest of the summer? Well, I think you should always enjoy the rest of the summer. But one other thing that I think people should know, I think a big decision about this is the provider network. You you know, you're always going to pay less by going in network. And, you know, you should not join a Fed VIP plan without looking at the provider directory and see, is the dentist or dentist or orthodontist that I currently see going to be in network? The networks vary quite a bit. You want to make sure that you're with a plan that's going to cover the dentist if keeping that dentist is important to you. You can get old, but you can't escape homework. You always have homework, Tom. All right. Kevin Moss, editor of Consumer's Checkbook Guide to Health Plans for Federal Employees. Please email us with your questions and concerns. We'll have Kevin back to answer them. Right now, we'll take a short break, and when we return, the implications of a looming lapse in appropriations when I talk with John Hatton of NARF. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. The crazy weather throughout the country seems to be reflected in Congress. Now on recess, when Congress returns, it'll have only 12 working days to work out a regular federal budget for 2024. Ain't going to happen. To explore the possible consequences, I spoke with the Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF, John Hatton. Federal agencies will keep "quote unquote" essential employees working um, with that with them waiting for their next paycheck if it goes to the pay period and that being delayed. Meanwhile, you have a lot of people still sent home, not working, uh, having backlogs of work kind of build up, and that is just basically a waste of taxpayer money because now there's actually a piece of law that says once people go back to work, if they're furloughed due to a shutdown, you your guaranteed back pay. In the past, that had been the practice every time every you know new appropriation bill that passed after a shutdown would provide people back pay. To me, it's really a complete waste of taxpayer money to make some type of political point by some contingent in Congress that never actually gets what it wants. There's never been a shutdown where the person or the group of people pushing for the shutdown for some policy concession have ever actually gotten that policy concession. So to me, it's really just a waste so that certain people can get on TV, have their base be riled up and enjoy them talking about it. And meanwhile, the rest of the American public suffers. You have national parks that close down. You have people, you have businesses that rely on income from people going to those parks. You have people that are going to them that have canceled vacations. That's just one particular uh, example of how it's a waste and how it impacts American citizens. 
And as you say, it doesn't save money because the federal employees correctly, you know, do get paid when they get back to work. But it looks like a greater possibility this year than simply a continuing resolution from the signs are. Yeah, there's definitely a contingent, the House Freedom Caucus, uh, that is pushing for basically a reversal of the budget deal that got signed into law, the Fiscal Responsibility Act that set sending, uh, spending caps uh, for the next two fiscal years. And they really want to go back to fiscal year 22 levels, particularly for non-defense spending, which would be a major cut. And so they've at least forced the Speaker of the House to, and the Appropriations Committee to pass appropriations bills at a committee and they're trying to get them passed on the floor that would write to those fiscal year 22 levels. That's just not going to fly with what the Senate's doing, with what the White House wants to do. Uh, it's not the agreement that was put into place. The Senate is going forward with various bipartisan bills that are to those spending caps. They came out of committee with unanimous support. So we're going to have to see if you know the Speaker is able to get bills through the House that are based on that bipartisan consensus in the Senate, or if he's going to be pushed into a shutdown from his House Freedom Caucus. And so that's what we're going to wait and see. I'm somewhat optimistic that given the strong bipartisan support in the Senate, that we can avoid a shutdown, that the Senate can pass some bills, send them to the House, and those are bills that can come to the House floor. Thus far, they've only passed one bill out of the House. Uh, they've been unsuccessful in trying to move other bills, weren't able to get the votes for a rule. And so if the speaker can show his caucus that, look, we can't even pass our own bills right now. Uh, we have these bills coming from the Senate. There's no reason to have a shutdown. I think we can get past this particular threat, but we're not past it yet. Uh, and there's certainly a contingent there in the House that uh, that does not want to move these bills. Right. So we won't know anything until after Labor Day. It's a couple of days right. after Labor Day, I think, that they don't actually get to work. So again, we get back to that 12 days. Plus, right. they have a few other things on their plates that, from their point of view, are even more important in some sense than appropriating the money to keep the government running. Something else for feds to worry about are legislatively proposed changes that would restrict or change what's available to federal investors in the thrift savings plan. What do you see for some of those? Yeah, we're seeing more and more politics enter into, you know, the investment decisions by the thrift savings plan under the argument this is taxpayer money. Now, I don't think this is taxpayer money. Once you have earned it and it's into your retirement account, it's your money, not taxpayer money. You've gotten that in compensation for your work. And so like anybody else's 401k, you should be able to invest that. Like anybody else's retirement funds, you should be able to invest that as you wish. There's been a couple efforts in Congress to kind of restrict that. The first was uh, language in the House Financial Services uh, and General Government Appropriations Bill that would prevent investment in any in anything that has criteria focused on environmental, social, and governance criteria for investment versus basic fiscal criteria or financial criteria. The concern there is none of the TSP core funds do that. And I don't think they sh that should be entered into the TSP core funds. But the mutual fund window has 5,000 various funds. And for the TSP to be put this burden on them, according to them, to be able to monitor all these funds for all their various investment criteria would prevent them from they wouldn't be able to do that. They would have to withdraw the mutual fund window. So all these different investments, not just ESG investments, but if you want to invest in commodities, you want to invest in real estate, you wouldn't have that available via the mutual fund window due to this amendment. Now, I don't think this is going to get passed into law, but then on the other side in the Senate, uh, Marco Rubio has tried to restrict any investments in China. And that may be a well-intentioned proposal, but currently the iFund is invested in Hong Kong. So, and Hong Kong is now part of China. 
So the I fund, if this if that amendment had passed, it did not, but it did get 55 votes on a 60 vote threshold. If that investment is passed, the I fund would right now cease to exist because they were not allowed to invest in Hong Kong based securities. And currently, even even if one could eventually be created in the future, currently there's no major index for international funds that invest money that excludes Hong Kong from their investments. And so and then the same concerns with the mutual fund window would occur with monitoring Chinese investments. And so again, I think it's the politics of China entering these investment decisions. They're not trying to restrict, let's say, investments in Apple, which of course invests in China, investments in other comp- US companies <laughs> invest in China. And they're saying this is taxpayer funds, but they're not investing, um, they're not restricting these investments from other US citizens. And in practice, I mean, this ESG is sort of less than meets the eye because people trade carbon credits. It's usually just sort of an exercise in fulfilling what looks like a nice social construct. But right. I mean, ultimately, you would think feds or anybody investing their own hard-earned money, as you put it, and it is their money. It's not really the government's money, except insofar as it covers the government's debts sometimes <laughs> when, you know, when the debt ceiling isn't raised, but it goes back right. to the people that whose money it is. But you would think ESG is a nice idea. But if you're saving for retirement, you really want the best return, and right. even if it's not ESG. And so yeah, TSP, I mean, I mean, the first board's responsibility is return and not right. social construct. Right. And that's that's what guides the the core TSP funds and the FERTIB's responsibilities for providing those options is to you know have a fiduciary standard that does not take into account ESG criteria. Now, the mutual fund window is you can take your money outside of those core funds and invest in whatever you like. And that was created in part to prevent people from taking their money out of the TSP because they wanted to invest their, their money in something different. And that might be ESG. And that's the basic principle is that you should do what you want with your money. The TSP is not going to necessarily create a fund for you that might not be based on their fiduciary standard, but you can go ahead and, and get that ESG or whatever else. And so that mutual fund window provides that additional flexibility to say, this is your money. TSP is going to provide their best guidance on what's a good investment. But if you decide that's wrong, you still have that option. And I think that's a good balance without having, you know, I think the concern with these two proposals and other legislation in Congress that would say, let's add an ESG core fund or something, is that more and more that enters politics into the realm of these investment decisions that should be without politics and based on fiduciary standards. And the concern is if you do this for China, if you do this for ESG, then there's going to be, you know, the other side of the aisle is going to say you have to have ESG, not, you know, we can't invest in fossil fuels or any, you know, we can't invest in a company that covers abortion services or that, you know, that does. So you really go down a really slippery slope when you start talking about these restrictions from Congress into what the TSP does. And just a final question I wanted to ask you about those big, well-publicized raises for Transportation Security Administration employees, principally the Transportation Security Officers, the TSOs. This is a long and welcome development, isn't it? Yes, very much so. The TSA employees have not had the kind of same level of pay as GS schedule, for example. And in the last year's appropriations bill, pay raises were funded. And so this is finally being implemented. People will get very welcome pay raises. It should help recruitment and retention of the TSA, which has been a major problem with 
turnover reaching just very high numbers. And so, you know, good for the employees at the TSA now, good for the agency in terms of recruitment and retention, and good for the American citizen in terms of making sure you have an agency that's staffed by people that are paid appropriately and that have experience because you're able to keep them. And what is NARF's take on the latest gambit from the White House to prod agencies to get going with their return to the office plans? Because the latest memo that got so much notoriety basically was just underscoring the April memo. It just did it in two pages instead of 19 pages of (laughs) incomprehensible stuff. But it doesn't really change what the policy is. And there is no single policy. So what should happen here? I think it's federal agencies should still retain that flexibility to set their policies. And the White House can kind of have some influence here and nudging agencies to kind of adopt these renewed policies post-pandemic that are a little bit more permanent, but they should still be able to take into account that some jobs are different than others, that some jobs can be done via remote work, that employee performance and engagement can be still high via remote work. So I think the White House should be striking a balance and uh, we'll have to see if it's putting its thumb too hardly on the scale in one direction or the other. But um, I think it's, you know, it's a question that every employer in the country is dealing with in terms of setting their return to work policies and how you strike that balance and realizing that there's lessons learned from the pandemic that, yes, we can work from home, but maybe there's still some benefits to in-office work as well. So it's tough to have a single answer for something that, honestly, no one really has a good single answer to. And so I think, obviously, the White House is putting their thumb a little bit on the scale here of, of going back into the office. It's just how hard are they pushing? John Hatton is vice president for policy and programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. That's it for FedLife this week. We'll be back next week with more on pay, benefits, and your career. I'm Tom Temin.